the Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast for April 2020. I am Mary McCarthy, a nurse scientist and associate editor for Nutrition and Clinical Practice. With me today is Stephanie Zoller, a registered dietitian, a licensed dietitian nutritionist, and certified nutrition support clinician, who is the nutrition support team coordinator at the Orlando VA Healthcare System in Orlando, Florida. Also, Peggy Gunter, a doctorally prepared registered nurse who is a fellow in the American Academy of Nursing as well as in the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. She is the Senior Director for Clinical Practice, Quality, and Advocacy for Aspen. Stephanie is the lead author and Peggy a co-author for the paper we will be discussing today titled Dispelling Myths and Unfounded Practices About Enteral Nutrition. Thank you for joining me today, Stephanie and Peggy. Let's get started. So, Steph, the authors involved in this paper seem to represent the full spectrum of nutrition support professionals. Can you speak briefly about this impressive group of experts and maybe more specifically, who else comprises the EN Task Force? Yes, uh, thanks for having us. Um, these are great questions. So we have an amazing group of 12 professionals involved in this project. Along with Peggy and myself, we also have Matthew Vegetold, Barry Burns, Teresa Cattell, Brandy Grenda, Lindsay Hafke, Tara Lemire, Jan Powers, Fred Reuning, and Lauren Tweet. Our multiple disciplinary team has nursing, medical provider, and dietitian representation. We are one subgroup of a larger group called the Aspen Enteral Nutrition Task Force. Um, this Enteral Nutrition Task Force has many projects going on at this time. Oh, great. Thanks for uh, sharing that and for identifying your co-authors. Uh, so this paper addresses numerous myths and unfounded practices related to enteral nutrition, a concerning 23 to be exact. Perhaps you could tell the listeners how you compiled this list, or where did the input for this fairly exhaustive list actually come from? <laughs> I agree, 23 is a lot, but we actually had an even larger list that we whittled down by removing less common ones and grouping similar myths together. Our team brainstormed every myth we had heard in our respective fields, and we were shocked to find that many of the same misconceptions were circulating in all these fields. Um, these myths were being perpetuated by multiple disciplines, including doctors, nurses, dietitians, as well as patients, family, and even caregivers. Well, would you say there's anything symbolic about the order in which they're written, or did you rank order them, or... Um, you know, maybe you look at the safety concerns or how challenging they were for the bedside provider. Um, Mary, I can take this one. The myths and practices that are displayed here in the paper, we lined up similarly to the safe practices for enteral nutrition document. We were walking through enteral access devices, formulas, administration, and complications. These are not rank ordered by safety concerns or the number of adverse events reported. As you know, there are very little data on enteral-related sentinel events and prevalence of these incidents, um, and many of them are not reported or, or 
the incident is kept within institutions. Right. You're very right about that. And that document you referenced is another great resource. So this will make a nice companion to that. Um, so also, when going about identifying the best source of evidence for particular clinical practices, um, when safety is a concern, you want the sources to be research papers with exceptional rigor and quality. So could one of you describe the process you use for identifying the best source of evidence or how you chose your references for these unfounded practices? Well, to refute them, actually. Obviously, pub, we went into PubMed, and that provides the latest papers on enteral practice. Um, these, these were searched for each one of these myths. We also used the 2016 Aspen Safe Practices for Enteral Nutrition Therapy and our critical care guidelines. As far as also finding data to justify some of these myths, one example would be the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority, which is Pennsylvania is one of the few states that requires mandatory reporting of incidents. And it did provide some data as validation for some of these myths. Some other reporting mechanisms that provide data include the Institute of Safe Medication Practices and MAUD, which is the device database of the FDA. There's not great, strong, prospective randomized trials around many enteral practices. And so we know it's a little bit softer science than um, some of our other areas. And we went through and found the best data that we could find. Thank you for that. And you're so right. I mean, having been, you know, part of other guidelines committees, sometimes the evidence just isn't there like you were hoping to find. That kind of brings me to my next question. I'll ask this one of Steph. So it seems that some of the myths have been addressed before in nutrition support or critical care or the home care literature. And yet we you've suggested that these ill-advised practices continue. So what do we need to do as nutrition support professionals to eradicate these unsafe and unsound enteral practices once and for all? Okay, so yeah, um, I think the best expression here is that old habits die hard. As nutrition support professionals, we need to get the information out to everyone. The lack of knowledge fuels these misinformations. It's not one specific discipline, nor is it just the new clinicians or just the seasoned clinicians. Getting articles out to help the conversation uh, going is a start. As a nutrition support expert in your facility, being involved in education is important. Getting involved in new employee orientation, routine meetings with your staff and providers, not only does this help remove that lack of knowledge that is the core of these myths, but it provides a where and a who to go to when these questions arise that they don't know the answer to. Also, being involved in education to patients and caregivers managing enteral nutrition at home is extremely important because, as we said, these myths are coming from many disciplines and being circulated through facilities and homes. So providing high-quality education to patients and caregivers, informing them that may, they may hear of home remedies and other strategies, um, and encouraging them to ask questions and be involved in their care, giving them evidence-based resources to turn to when issues or questions arise. Hopefully, all these interventions can combine to create a culture 
in all settings that looks for the evidence, not just the answer. I'd also like to add a couple things. Um, we at Aspen are working hard to try to take these really large evidence-based documents and turn them into easy to digest short educational offerings using one pagers, short videos, checklists, and podcasts such as this. We're really trying to reach out to our members and also to non-member clinicians. Um, we're also relaunching our clinical app soon, and we hope to put some of this material in the app so the clinicians will have it at the bedside. That's great, making a resource that's so readily available. They don't have an excuse to, you know, answer it as that's how we've always done it, right? So exactly. thank you for that. Uh, well. I'm wondering if either of you would care to expound on one or two of these 23 myths. Now, some of them do kind of cluster around a similar topic. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I think that, you know, in our own disciplines, we, we might have some of these uh, specific concerns, but I know one that probably crosses all of the disciplines would be the NFIT rollout and some of the myths you've mentioned there that have created barriers maybe to implementation. Yeah, of course. Um, I'll go ahead and start um, with the new uh, ISO 803-693 compliant myth as my facility switched over to the NFIT um, product and almost all of our tubes and supplies have been converted. There's been many challenges in converting to these new compliant adapters. And a very real challenge is when patients have one of these new tubes and they go to a facility that hasn't converted their supplies yet. And this can lead to, at a minimum, the inability to flush the tube or administer medications, and at times can result in patients going long-term without nutrition. There's been a lot of misleading uh, information circulating these connectors and saying that they're unnecessary. While these connectors are not mandatory at this time, the FDA is recommending the conversion to these devices to decrease the risk of these misconnections. These misconnections have led to sentinel events and placing priority on prevention of these issues is paramount. Um, I'd like to just bring up one other myth that we talked about, and that's the issue of NG2 placement and verification, which is an ongoing issue in both pediatrics and adults. Um, this is where clinicians continue to use practices such as auscultation and gastric contents visualization alone to verify tooth placement. We know that patients have had tubes in their lungs despite use of these measures. And the Aspen-led novel project, which is chaired by Beth Lyman, that stands for New Opportunities for Verification of Enteral Tip Location. It's a multi-organizational project working to develop best practices and encouraging new technology around tube placement and verification. We've had great success with our pediatric group, and we've started an adult novel project as well. That's excellent. I, I think there's many of us in the field who are anxiously waiting <laughs> the results from the adult project. We've been uh, hearing about the pediatric one and the difference it's making, so that's excellent. So, would either of you care to touch on blenderized formulas? Uh, there were at least five myths, I think, that address this area, and it does seem to be getting a lot more attention these days. Would you care to dispel any of the myths around this method of enteral nutrition support? 
Um, I just want to say a couple things about it. I think people need to look at blenderized formulas that are commercially prepared versus blenderized formulas that are homemade um, and distinguish those because there are differences in terms of some of these myths. Also, I think we need to make sure about the setting, whether it's inpatient or home or long-term care, and look at the use of it. Make sure that the indications are appropriate. And um, it's sort of a new buzzword, and everyone thinks blenderized formulas are the next best thing. Um, and they may be, but we need to be clear about the indications and, and the use of them and the um, concerns that there might be around many of the myths that we, we brought up. I think they are, that's a great contribution in, in the paper. So thank you for tackling that one. So unless either of you care to discuss any of the other myths or have any closing comments, I, I think I would like to say that this discussion has been very informative, quite revealing regarding the ongoing challenges of evidence-based uh, enteral nutrition administration. And it sounds like you have described a very critical role for nutrition support professionals who must elevate nutrition care as a priority and implement only evidence-based interventions to promote safe, high-quality, and age-specific care. I think it needs to be very environment-specific, too, as, as you just indicated, Peggy. Well, I'm going to thank you for your time today, thank our listeners, and uh, remind them that if they would like to read more about uh, dispelling myths and the unfounded practices about enteral nutrition, they can read the paper that Stephanie and Peggy have co-authored in the April 2020 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice.